Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, I'm Clive Anderson. Welcome to My Seven Wonders. Since the dawn of civilization, the greatest monuments, mausoleums, and other mighty works of mankind have been identified as wonders of the world. And like days of the week or deadly sins, there are always seven of them. The seven wonders of the world in ancient times included pyramids, hanging gardens, and a lighthouse. A more modern list of wonders includes the Taj Mahal, the Great Wall of China. Other lists of seven celebrate natural wonders such as the Great Barrier Reef in Australia, the Grand Canyon in America. Then there are the seven engineering wonders of the world, which include the Panama Canal and the London sewage system. But what are the seven wonders you would put on your personal list? That's the question I ask my guests in this podcast. And the guest I'm asking today is the stand-up comedian, author and broadcaster Shappi Korsandi. Shappi was born in Iran but brought up in England and she seems to have been destined for a career as a performer by nature and nurture. Her father is a renowned satirist and poet and Shappi herself studied drama, theatre and television at university. And she's been performing on stage at comedy festivals and on television and radio ever since. So uh, Shappi, I'm making the assumption from the fact that you went to university to study drama and television... That suggests you knew the sort of thing you wanted to do from an early age. Yeah, well, I did, but I didn't read my university prospectus properly. And I didn't realise until I started, I got there, that it was a highly academic and very politicised course. Oh, right. It wasn't, you know, jazz hands, learning plays, performing, making costumes at all. Now, that's drama school, isn't it? Yeah, I know. And this course was all about, you know, theatre as a political tool, access television, community drama. And I think it was after our first lecture, I put my hand up and I said, are we going to have a Christmas show? And the look the lecturer gave to me was, uh, yeah, really quite something. So, yeah, it was it was a... a, a a course run by experimental Marxists, I think, and we all came out very um, confused as to what we're qualified now to do. Well, you touch on uh, political uh, themes in your in your stand-up comedy, so either that did fit in with your outlook on life or it's uh, perhaps you absorbed some of that as, as you went along. I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it, and I think it gave me um, perhaps an intellectual depth that I wouldn't have at the age of, you know, 19 have pursued voluntarily all right well perhaps we'll uh, we'll discover more about the how all that work let's start on your your seven wonders and your first wonder is is a man charlie chaplin uh, now why have you chosen him i um have loved charlie chaplin since i was a child i used to watch him all the time uh, with my dad that was like, one of the things we like to do uh, with each uh, together on a sunday and as I grew up, I realised that Charlie Chaplin wasn't just about being funny, although obviously he was a genius slapstick artist. But I went to a festival recently, a slapstick festival in, in Bristol, and they were comparing Charlie Chaplin to Buster Keaton. And for me, they are very separate. They're, they're contemporaries. 
but in their craft, what they did was completely different. And it, it was, um, I, I never buy into that comparison. And uh, when I was younger and more emotional, I remember I walked out of a pub because this chap I was talking to just kept saying, yeah, but Charlie Chaplin's not funny. That's not what he sounded like. That's just how people sound like in my head when they disagree with me. <laughs> yes. And I, I just was so, <laughs> like, he's not about just to make you laugh. He, he's a social commentator. How could, and my answer now when people say Charlie Chaplin's not funny, I always say to them, which Chaplin film have you seen? The answer will always be none. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it strikes me that Charlie Chaplin is one of those people. He's such a big star. He was so fantastically talented. As you say, he did, you know, comedy, slapstick. Then he became a director. He founded a company, he did the music. And he was so well known that people, it's a bit like, you know, rock bands who become too popular, that people kind of fancy themselves, have to say, oh, no, I, I never really liked the Beatles. I liked, uh, you know, the Incredible String Band. You know, I, you, just, you just don't want to be one of the pack of millions of people around the world adoring a particularly big star or, or a big band. Absolutely. And I, and I think that people who, who, um, don't engage with that, aren't fans of cinema. They aren't, they aren't fans of film history, otherwise they would know what a gigantic place he had. And you, you've mentioned a couple of times watching Charlie Chaplin with your father, um, and I mentioned in the beginning, because he had to leave Iran because of the, the danger that he was in, because he was satirising the, the leaders there. And Charlie Chaplin, not quite the same way, but he, he had to leave America in the end of his career because he was suspected of being a communist sympathizer and the the way that worked at that time he wasn't being able to work and also for his way he was marrying and young women he was so forth so he was sort of driven out of america was there a, was a fellow feeling there between your father and him or you and, uh, and and charlie chaplin as a result of that i absolutely um I, yeah i see that parallel and i feel both were betrayed hugely by countries they served and were incredibly popular in, but their popularity made them a threat and they were punished for it. And I, I really connected with that. And actually, you, you, you skimmed over his marriage to a 16-year-old. I was skimming over because it was in passing. I just thought, oh, well, there wasn't, it wasn't just the, the, the communist sympathy. There were, there were other sort of moral uh, considerations that, that people brought to bear. Yeah, it, it was a, a massive scandal. And I think now, with, with the modern sensibilities that we have, we can't really mention Chaplin without mentioning the massive scandal that at the age of 29, um, he married a 16-year-old actress, Mildred Harris. So his relationship with her began when she was just 15. And his mother, her mother told Chaplin that he has to marry her. And he put her in a film, and they had a baby who died um, shortly after he was born, and... His grave was just marked the little mouse. And that is a massively problematic part of, of Chaplin's personal uh, history and his life that now, when we look back in the 20s, what men uh, were getting away with. So, yeah. Well, you've, you've strayed slightly away from I Charlie have. Chaplin. But to make a, a more general <laughs> point, and it's a, good, it's a good point, but, well, perhaps we should just emphasise Charlie Chaplin's um, impressive qualities because he started, he was born into poverty in, in London, did very well in you know, music hall and that sort of thing, and then was able to go to America and be there right at the start of the silent film era. And then he was still making movies 
was the Countess from Hong Kong, I think it was 1967. So a very extensive think, uh, film career. Just just to go back to the the his childhood. So one of the things that I found so mesmeric about Charlie Chaplin was that he, he was the son of two very minor vaudeville, his father less minor, but his mother of a minor vaudevillian performers. And then there's a story of one day his mother was dying on stage, being booed, and the show manager pushed little Charlie out age four or five. And he did a little dance and the crowd um, turned the other way. They cheered and they threw coins. And that, you know, as legend has it, was his first ever performance. But his mother was very ill. She was very mentally ill. And they lived in dreadful poverty. Now, just going back to my father, my father lived in rural Iran. When my dad was seven, his father died and my grandmother couldn't look after her children. So the boys were sent to a, a children's home. Uh, in Tehran and and that was only until my dad was 12 or 13 and then he went to work in a bobbin factory and it's sort of you know it has parallels with Chaplin them having to eventually go to work in a workhouse I uh, live in a workhouse and then my father my father delivered yogurts as a teenager to local businesses and with his pennies that he made he'd watch tv comedy shows in the television sets and in the coffee shops that he bought hot chocolate in and then he thought, I could do this. And he started writing comedy sketches. And that's how he started. And there is that thing about this, you know, children who aren't parented, both neither my dad or Charlie Chaplin were parented efficiently and then spent the rest of their lives doing everything they can to speak up for the underdog and to make a connection with people. The aeroplane and the radio have brought us closer together. The very nature of these inventions cries out for the goodness in men, cries out for universal brotherhood, for the unity of us all. Even now, my voice is reaching millions throughout the world, millions of despairing men, women, and little children, victims of a system that makes men torture and imprison innocent people. To those who can hear me, I say, do not despair. The misery that is now upon us is but the passing of greed, the bitterness of men who fear the way of human progress. The hate of men will pass and dictators die. And the power they took from the people will return to the people. And so long as men die, liberty will never perish. Let's move on to your second wonder, which is relates to your childhood, which is uh, you've selected a giant painting of a Tudor house you did when you were seven, uh, which your parents keep framed in their house. They do. They're obsessed with it. Well, my father's obsessed with it. So this picture has been preserved in my family over everything else. It's big. It was like on a big piece of paper. And I remember at primary school, we had to put them all on the ground and draw. And we were studying the Tudors. And so we had to build a Tudor house. And my teachers, and, and I remember they said that often there was a pub near the Tudors house, houses and, and my teacher said, why don't you have a go at, at drawing a pub? And I didn't know what a pub was. So I've drawn these bizarre little triangles in the corner and I've drawn a table with the queen sat at it because to my mind, the only person that would live in a house that big would be the queen. And I drew it, we had to have partners because these paintings were so big. And I drew it with a girl called Zenith who was um, from India. And halfway through the drawing, she had to go back to India. And I remember feeling devastated. It was my first great loss. But obviously not my first because we'd already come to England and left all our family in Iran. But her leaving to go to India 
devastated me and I carried on this painting on my own. And the bits that she drew were so much neater than my bits. And over the years, my, my father's, um, you know, for my birthday once, I think it was my 30th, he, he made me a 3D model of this house. So he did it exactly as I had drawn it as a child, but made it into this model house. And then later on, he made a, made a little gold pendant for me, which was the shape of this house. And then most recently, he commissioned an artist to paint this house. Um, and exactly as I'd drawn it as a child, and then she drew a lawn, and on the lawn was sat um, myself on a rug with my son and my daughter and a cat. So we're on the lawn of this house. And I was just thought this means way more to my dad than it means to me. And between you and me, the, the, the picture's a monstrosity. <laughs> no one knows where to put it. And I realised it's because I think my dad felt that he missed so much of our childhood through work and partying and just being, you know, wrapped up in, in his world of writing and, you know, Iran and the politics. And he sort of, in the midst of it all, saw these two little kids running around. Um, my father bathed us once when we were children, once. And to this day, he'll make, remember that time I gave you a bath? And he really wants oh, us to reminisce about the time he gave us a bath. Well, I did wonder when I saw this was on your list of wonders uh, that, what, you know, you're selecting something you made yourself. Um, <laughs> I have not had that yet. Um, but I can see, I, I can hear rather, how, how important this, this painting, however good or bad it is, how important it is in the connection between you and the, and the rest of your family. And uh, did you, Zenith, did you say that was the name of the, the girl? Zenith, did, did, yeah. Have you made contact with her ever again? No, I haven't, sadly, because I, I, um, I, d- I don't remember her surname. I think it was Khan, but you can imagine looking up Zenith Khan is, um, is very tricky. But no, the, I've just realised how, how that does look, choosing my own painting. I have no emotional connection to the painting myself, but it's my throughout my life watching my dad's obsession with it. That's no need to it... apologise for selecting yourself, but I want to take issue with the fact that there's no emotional connection. <laughs> <laughs> there's, a, there's a strong emotional connection, well, even if it has to go in via your father. I realise it's how my father expresses his love for me, is by making me trinkets and things to show me, because he's, you know, he's, he's a... Uh, he grew up in a... Like... like in, like Charlie Chaplin, he can express himself through his work, through his poetry, to the wider world and um, love for all people. But just in the home, he finds ex- expressions of love and affection very difficult because if you haven't had people doing it for you, it's very difficult for you to do it. You feel it, but you can't say it or do it. You can just have really hideous paintings drawn for your daughter. And I suppose a, I suppose a Tudor house is a particularly English thing. I think you were living in, is it Ealing on the west of London? Yeah. Which is quite an English, though a cosmopolitan place uh, for quite a while, but it's quite a comfortable English thing, which might compare and contrast quite considerably with, a, with life in Iran. You know, that's that's a very um, nail-on-the-head point you just made because um, Tudor houses and actually, although Ealing is cosmopolitan, back in the 70s, 
it wasn't so much. And my school was England to me because everything outside of school was my family and the Iranian community. And that was all Iran. But school was so English. And I threw myself as a child wholeheartedly into Englishness. And this Tudor house and my teachers explaining about country folk and, and, you know, rich people. And I was like, oh, this is how like proper English people live. And you're absolutely right. This painting for me as a child, like did represent this world that I wanted to belong to. Um, And, you know, yeah, it absolutely had a had had that. And were you happy at school? I, I only ask that because uh, you know I interviewed loads and loads of people, and uh, sometimes they've come from abroad or a different background, different race. Some people say no, it was fantastic. Other people say, oh no, it was awful. I was excluded and I was picked on. And you know, so I'm just asking which category you might belong to. Um, my, well, my primary school um, was the happiest days of my life. I can't begin to tell you how much I loved every single minute of every single day at primary school and then I went to um, a big comprehensive and got the shock of my life (laughs) it was I did not cope well in in my school why because there were too many people or there were too many cliques and groups I I went from a really twee little primary school where we you know had harvest festivals and everyone was sweet to each other and I had a special teacher when I was very young because I didn't speak English I had a teacher called Mrs Gad who sat who who I'm in touch with again who used to sit with me at lunch times and practice my English with me and all I was met with was kindness and our headmaster Mr McQueen he was you know really into amateur dramatics so he would he would write our school plays and you know I would so enjoy all of that and then I went to high school where I didn't have the wit to drop my accent because at primary school I very deliberately spoke as posh as possible because I so wanted to fit in and be English. So what just just to interrupt what what age were you when you came from Iran to to I was 4. 4. So you yeah. you'd, you'd learned to speak in do you call the language Farsi in in Iran? Yeah. yeah. So you'd learned to speak in that and then you learned it again as a as a subject and you learned to speak in a, obviously an elegant way, and that wasn't quite what was required at Ealing Comp or whatever it was called. No, I just immediately got picked on for being posh. And my poshness was completely manufactured because I didn't get my accent from my parents. I got my accent from, you know, I wanted to be an you know a, a actor. I wanted to be a movie star, and I spoke how people on TV and radio spoke. Um, and, and I think accents to an extent are a decision, like where you want to belong. And that's where I wanted to belong. And then it was like, oh, it was horrific. And then the film producer, Steve McQueen, uh, was a few years above me at, at the same high school as me. Oh, wow. And I found it really interesting in so many interviews he talks about our school and how he's had to undo the damage. And that's exactly how I feel, because he was dyslexic and I'm dyslexic. And we were bright kids that were written off as being stupid and lost in this, in this, um, in this comprehensive system in, in the 80s. And uh, it's been very cathartic, actually, <laughs> reading um, him and, and hearing him speak about it. I had a tough time at school. Every, every day was hard. The only time I started to cope in school was I was being picked on uh, and eventually I told my dad 
And he said, there was a phone box in the foyer of the school and he gave me um, some Tempe coins. He said, you keep these in your bag. Anytime you like, you ring me and I will pick you up. Don't worry about your teachers. I'll square it with them. But you don't have to stay there a minute longer if you can't bear it. And that was it. That I never did call him. I never did ask to be taken home. But knowing that I had that option. It was a nuclear option or the security blanket. Excellent. Yeah, it was horrid. There'll be some annotations to this conversation for younger people. Uh, phone on the wall, coins. <laughs> and exp- what are they talking about? <laughs> Why didn't about? you use your mobile? They're screaming at you. But, 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 but never mind. <laughs> Hello, I'm Bob Ross. And I'd like to welcome you to the 24th Joy of Painting series. If this is your first time with us, please allow me to extend a personal invitation for you to drag out your brushes and, and some paints and paint along with us each show. And if you've been with us before, allow me to thank you for inviting us back for another series of painting shows. The next one is coffee shops. Now, are these coffee shops in London or coffee shops in Amsterdam? You know, a different kind of coffee shop. But what, what, what do you mean? Cafe or a place you buy? What, what? Do you know what? I remember going to, I'm not one for drugs. But I did go to a coffee shop in Amsterdam once and I was talking to a friend and I was doing things that were perfectly legal and her head suddenly turned into a triangle and I laughed solidly for about an hour. But no, those aren't (laughs) the coffee shops I'm talking about. Um, I write in coffee shops. That's where... No, I've heard of this. I've I've heard of people doing this quite a lot. Isn't it distracting that you've got, you know, you've got to buy yourself a cup of coffee, you might engage in a conversation, or, or are you making observations while you're there, you know, see, looking at other people? It's being around people, but not talking to any of them and none of them having anything to do with me. So having that sort of hubbub around, but it not being in the environs of my own home where I can see stuff that needs doing and, you know, dogs that need patting and all of that. Um and I can stay, I, I find it very hard to stay focused in my house, but I can stay hyper-focused in a coffee shop. I get more done in an hour in a coffee shop than I do in six hours at home. And why I think coffee shops are so important, is for, first up, the history of them. They started off in the Arab world where they set up coffee stands in libraries. So people would have coffee and be sociable and read books and discuss and all of that. So they were, they were sociable places, like pubs, but without alcohol. In fact, coffee used to be known as wine of the Muslims um, because that's what they drank to socialise and chat and connect with each other. And then when I really value them is also they're just a place for people to gather and be together that aren't, you know, that you don't need to get drunk at. So many people and so many columns I've read have moaned about mums with buggies gathering together and talking about, you know, food patterns and feeding patterns and nappies and all of that. And it's very easy to mock those gatherings as dull and boring and inane. But if you've never been in that situation, you don't understand that these coffee shops and those gatherings are keeping those women sane as they're looking after tiny humans. Um, And I found that when my children were infants sitting in a coffee shop chatting to other mums you know in so many ways sort of saved my sanity so that's a different use of coffee shop you you've you've mentioned going there to be on your own to write but at different perhaps stages in your life you've you've also been there to i don't know moan about your children or to uh, discuss the issues Just of connect yeah, yeah. yes yeah 
connecting with people. It's it's like going into a do- a pub with a dog. You know, if you want to make friends, get a dog because people who also like dogs come and talk to you. Likewise, if you're with your baby, other people in the same boat say hello to you and talk to you because it can be very lonely. You know, um, much as you love your baby and you can die for them, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, you do need to connect with other other adults because you know it takes a village and the coffee shops are the village. But when you're trying to sit quietly, maybe observe, certainly to get work done. I, I mean, I, how easy is that for you now? Because there would have been a time when you perhaps might have been an anonymous person, but you're liable to get, are you, from time to time, somebody says, oh, Shabby, I saw you on Live at the Apollo. I was watching you on Dave just the other night. Oh, I don't agree with something you said there. Or oh, that was a great joke. Do you get people coming up to you in, in those sort of ways? Well, luckily, I'm not Beyonce. I think Beyonce would be would find it problematic in a coffee shop. My level of recognition um, in a public place tends to be people think that our kids go to the same school, or they think they've worked with me somewhere, or um, or they do recognise me from telly or something, and they just smile. So I like my level of whatever it's called because it just makes the world a little bit friendlier. Um, if I was, you know, famous, famous, um, and people stared and whispered. The only time I've had people staring and whispering is if I've just been on like, like when I did I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here. That was crazy. When I, for the first two weeks of when I came out, when it came back, um, I couldn't go anywhere really without hordes of people coming up. And that was really strange. I thought, oh, to actually live your life all the time like this must be, uh, you must have to get a disconnect from people. And that's the opposite of what I need to do and want to do in my life. So you, you didn't like that level of fame? That was too much to have no, it's horrible. millions of people? No, if I liked that level of fame, I would have worked harder to stay in that show. It was really... <laughs> I just sat on a log politely until they let me out. It was. Why, um, why did you do it at all? As a money. <laughs> oh. if, it's, if it's not too gauche. No, no <laughs> don't fair enough. Me, <laughs> they made me an offer I, I, I would have been mad to refuse. <laughs> As he's walking along these streets in Milan, he's noticing just the culture of these Italian coffee bars. And not so much the coffee as the community that they're creating and the buzz that all hours of the day, you've got people coming in and out of these shops, you know, standing, having their morning or afternoon espresso and having great, very animated conversation in in, uh, streets in Milan. And he falls in love with this idea. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. 
So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This week at Sukarnov. On Clash of the Titles, things got a little awkward when Alex, Vicky and Chris discussed the Incredible Hulk going to the hairdressers. Have you never had a haircut? Hang on, that is not what I asked for. I can't remember what it's like to go to the hairdressers. Oh, God, sorry, sorry. That's triggering, sorry. That's on me, Bad yeah, Bad absolutely. Bit, yeah, that is on you, yeah. Absolutely, I didn't, I forgot... I forgot. Because we haven't seen you for such a yeah. long time. We forgot you've got no <laughs> I'm hair. I'm still poor. So. Yeah, it hasn't grown back <laughs> magically since okay. we last spoke. <laughs> and over on Football Ramble Presents, the On the Continent team have been keeping you across all the European knockouts, as well as a possible title race in League Earn as well. Icardi can be so frustrating because he can be just one of the most impressive finishers. But, you know, when he's not quite on it, he's kind of like the David Blaine of football. Like, he spends a lot of time in a box not doing anything. <laughs> Find Clash of the Titles and Football Ramble Presents on your favourite podcast player and listen now. All that and a whole lot more at Sukarnov. Right, we've got to move on to your next wonder, which is um, a slight surprise, I suppose, but Nelson's Column. Yeah. Now, why Nelson's Column? Well, it's not the column itself, um, but it's just the story of Horatio Nelson and his love affair with Emma Hamilton. So when I was a child, we um, did a play about Nelson and we did the song, Hip Hip Horatio, Hip Hip Hooray, that's what the people all say. And, you know, you know, at my school in the 70s, there was a lot of sort of be proud of your country going on, which I threw myself into. And then we touched on his affair with Emma Hamilton and our teacher giggled that he was married, but he had an affair with this woman. And then um, I was always um, fascinated by Nelson and, uh, you know, just the naval history. And it wasn't until I was older that I realised that um, how desperately sad Emma Hamilton's story actually was, and she wasn't just merely arm candy. She was an incredible uh, woman with an extraordinary life uh, who was ultimately massively let down by England. Uh, when um, one thing we weren't taught in school was her story. So she was uh, like many girls from the countryside that had no money. She came to London. She worked in the sex industry. Um, she, her only chance at survival was being the, you know, the, the concubine uh, of rich men who treated her dreadfully. She had no agency and she was uh, essentially gifted to Lord Hamilton in Naples um, like she was, a, you know, a, a puppy at Christmas. And despite all this, this incredibly intelligent woman reinvented herself. She became kind of a diplomat really and she met Nelson and Nelson was the first um, person who treated her with respect you know didn't just treat her as an object she'd become phenomenally famous because she was the the muse of of Romney and Emma paintings of of, of uh, Emma Hamilton made her tremendously famous she was a trendsetter she was the you know gossip magazine fodder and then um, when he was at Trafalgar um, Nelson wrote a codicil to his will and 
he asked um, that Emma and their daughter Horatia be looked after. Now, they had to pretend that Horatia was their adopted daughter because she was born out of wedlock and he, and he was still married. His wife wouldn't um, divorce him. Um, her, you know, not being rude about his wife, but they lived separate lives. And But they named the child Horatia, like no, no one was ever going to guess. You know, it's like me having a secret child and calling it Chapeau. And he was on the HMS Victory and he wrote in his will um, about the eminent services of Emma Hamilton, widow of the Right Honourable Sir William Hamilton. So if I may, I'm just going to read you what he wrote. And he could see the Spanish fleets on the border and his last thoughts were with Emma. And he wrote, um, could I have rewarded these services myself, I would not now call upon my country. But as that has not been in my power, I leave Emma Hamilton, therefore a legacy to my king and country, that they will give her an ample provision to maintain her rank in life. I also leave to the beneficence of my country my adopted daughter, Horatia Nelson Thompson, and I desire she will use in future the name of Nelson only. These are the only favours I ask of my king and country at this moment when I'm going to fight their battle. May God bless my king and country on those, all those I hold dear. And they didn't honour this part of his will. She ended up um, in a debtor's prison. And then to escape her debts, she ended up a derelict alcoholic refugee in Calais, where she died. And when I think back of when we you know, made a paper mache Nelson's column at school and we were ordered to march around it singing Hip Hip Horatio. When I got older, I thought her story and what happened here and how this man was actually betrayed is, is far more prominent than even now people acknowledge. So, so the story of Nelson, Nelson and Emma is one of my wonders because I'm kind of obsessed with it. And uh, so whenever I see his column, I think of her. Well, this is all fascinating. My, my one query is why are you representing all this with Nelson's column, which uh, it, it is a monumental thing, so I suppose it's, it's a wonder of the world. It, it is a most extraordinary memorial, um, not the first to him around the country, but it's, uh, as, as everyone knows, it's huge, though it's not quite as huge as people thought it was. They, they remeasured it, and it turns out Nelson's column wasn't quite as big as everyone thought, but uh, that happens to the best of us. I think I still think he's he's um, he's over plinthed, and my own theory was that they 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 made the plinth so high because they couldn't bring themselves to look him in the eye <laughs> after what they did to Emma. Oh right, oh I see. It was a guilt thing there. Yeah, just stick him up there. We won't have to. Yeah. Look well, his him. reputation has been revisited for all sorts of things uh, yes. recently, but you can't take away from him the triumphs of not only Trafalgar but uh, the Battle of the Nile and and, and elsewhere. You know, around, around the world, really. So. Uh, an extraordinary man, but she was certainly an extraordinary woman. Um, and I, I think, um, I think if we're going to have this wonder, I think it should be recorded as Nelson's column and uh, Emma Hamilton. Maybe Emma and Nelson's romance. Can that? Be yes. Her? Okay. I think that's. I think that's a better way of expressing this wonder. Emma Hamilton had an astonishing rise from extreme poverty in the north of England, very little expected of her, to this moment in which she was one of the most famous women in Europe, certainly the most famous woman in England, talked about, fated, discussed, copied. She became a celebrity, we might say the first celebrity, and yet she came from nothing. And what enabled this was 
Well, there was quite a lot of luck, and yes, she was beautiful, but she was also intelligent, hardworking, tenacious, and most of all, she had a huge amount of courage. She refused to be daunted, she refused to be pushed back. She was always determined and going to go for her dreams. You mentioned your children, and but they are your fifth wonder. Is it just your children or children generally? Children generally, I think. I'm a big fan of children. Uh, whenever there's anything, um, whenever a child's done anything wrong, I'm always on the side of the child because I don't think they, they do anything wrong, children. I think that they just need, they're needing to express themselves, you know. And um, I, I, I was, um, in particular, I was thinking about my son when he was being very naughty, naughty, uh, whatever that means, when he was three and not putting his shoes on and he kept hurling them at the wall. And him at the age of three was a child who, whose parents had just broken up and his world had split into two and he had absolutely no way of expressing his emotions around it because he was, you know, a three-year-old child. And so he threw his shoes at the wall. And I was in a very um, difficult um, emotional state pretty much constantly and I ended up screaming at him one day and he, he looked at me with tears in his eyes and he said you're not angry with me you're angry with something else but only I'm here brilliant that's a brilliant analysis I mean not just for a for a small child given anybody giving that analysis of what's going on at any given time it's brilliant, isn't it? Yeah. And it really stopped me in my tracks and it just showed me just how much children understand and just how much that we have we make we have made them suffer by writing them off as mere children. They won't get it. Like, oh God, I've mentioned my dad so much in this, but when he when his dad died, the attitude was, Oh, he's only seven, he won't remember. He'll be fine. We just won't talk about it. We just won't talk about it. And so as a result, they, you know, caused some serious damage um, to this man, uh, the, to this child, and now to this man. And, and I think that we could all have a much better world if, um, if we took children's thoughts and feelings and self-expression more seriously. You know, when, when my, my friend's child was stealing... And she, was, she went down on him like a ton of bricks. And my feeling was, if you tell him off, it's going to make him a better liar because you're making him scared of you. You've got to find out why he's stealing. Why does he want your attention? You know, what, that's what he's doing. So um, I'm not a saint, by the way. I've been horrific. I've been a horrific parent at certain points. I'm not, this, this doesn't come from a place of, I've done it perfectly. It's like, God, I've gone so wrong <laughs> so often. But I, no, I was, but I was impressed by you, you, what you said your son said at age two. I don't want to intrude into your world or his world, but he's, he must be a bit older now. Has he now become a psychoanalyst or is he uh, heading in that direction or has that faded away? Has he he's taken up other interests now? As Oh, do you know what, Clive? It hasn't faded away. He's 13 now, and he still floors me with his wisdom. Um, he's, yeah, he's, he's a wise person, and he'll, he's growing up to be a wise young man, and, and I um, sometimes forget he's only 13, <laughs> and sometimes he has to go, Mum, kid, leave me alone. All right, sorry, I'll, I'll, I'll ask advice of someone else then. OK. Is your nana here today? Yep. Yeah? Just over there in the audience. All right. And how old is Nanny? 
Um, she's in her fifties. Michael's only in the twenties. Michael's in the in sixty. Yeah. How old was your nanny when she had your mummy? I don't know. I wasn't born. I'm only six. <laughs> We're not really leaving children behind, but we're, uh, I want to just go on to the next wonder, the sixth wonder as well, because you've, you've got women's liberation, because you've, you've um, foreshadowed some of this conversation already, because you've mentioned your son, your first son, and you were married for a few years to a, a fellow comedian, so I assume he did got a, a jolly childhood at the beginning. Then you were divorced, and, now, and you mentioned in passing you've, you've had another child, but as it were, on your own, without having a, a husband or partner to be there to, uh, to help with the bringing up. And that's part of women's liberation. It's part of what children are today. Why have you put women's liberation down as one of your wonders? Well, because um, we talk so much about feminism, uh, and and you know, feminism is an. It's not one thing. It's an, and and it's a hugely academic topic, to be discussed by academics in with academic words and <laughs> things that sometimes like. Um, you know, I, I have a very short attention span. I end up just wandering off and trying to find some marbles to play with or something. But women's liberation, if we could just go to the bare bones of it, um, is something that I never take for granted and think about a lot, particularly in my own situation and the line of women that I come from. So my grandmother, my great-grandmother, Aziz, was forced to marry and I and I I'm, you can't see me I'm doing the quotes for marry what does that mean at the age of nine she was forced to marry a man in his 30s when she was nine years old and she had my grandmother and she had my um, great uncle and when she was in her teens uh, she divorced which is a massive deal because what do you know this kid couldn't cope with a marriage but in Iran the law then and and now is if you divorce, the children automatically go to the husband, to the man. So she left her t my two-year-old grandmother and her four-year-old with her husband. Now, the husband was like, well, okay, I'll look after the child, the boy, but what am I going to do with the girl? No interest. And my grandmother was raised by a foster family. And this foster family, to this day, we call our, our cousins. So there's a whole branch of my family that aren't blood because my grandmother and their children were raised together, their, their family. Um, and my grandmother was married off when she was 12 and had my mum when she was uh, 13. And this is only a couple of generations ago. And my mum and dad met at a wedding, they fell in love and they married in their early 20s. So that forcing a child to marry stopped then. Um, and my parents just celebrated their 50th wedding anniversary and they're still having arguments about how many different brands of cheese my mother's bought. So it's a much more normal, you know, relationship. And I, I just blows me away sometimes when I think of the life I've had, obviously because I've moved to England, but also because of my parents, you know, no judgment about me getting divorced. Um, no judgment about me um, becoming pregnant later on with a man who didn't want to know and having the baby and raising my daughter by myself no worries or fears of what the community will think or what family in Iran will think and everyone being so utterly supportive 
and then realizing that they were never going to judge because the women in my family were actually the most incredibly supportive when I was divorcing because they saw it as such a privilege to be able to and keep my children. Yeah. Well, and you've gone into the history of your family in Iran, but of course, if you went back into British history, um, things have changed, you know, or, you know, as far as women are concerned, hugely over the last 100 years or so, or a bit more than 100 years, uh, you know, Married Women's Property Act allowed women to have, have their own property, uh, divorce coming in, you know, suffrage, voting and so forth. Um, but so as far as um, your life is concerned, it's made a, a huge difference to you and you can easily compare and contrast with previous generations. Are you are, are you thinking that there's still more to be done or it's, it's in a way it's always easy to look back at the past. Oh, yeah, that's what extraordinary time we've made that change. But, but is, is there, you know, any, anything else that you would say needs to be worked for well, in women's liberation terms? In this country, um, you know, we have equality placed in law, you know. So I'm much more outward looking to countries who still, um, you know, where women are, are still struggling and suffering uh, and, and fighting for, for very basic rights that we have in this, in this country. Um, I think that in terms of here, it really is a very individual thing that the young women are brilliant at, you know, the Me Too movement, um, catching yourself, catching yourself doing certain things that men don't do. Here's, here's a really little thing that I noticed, and I was talking to my daughter about this, and she gets it. She's only seven, but she understood what I was saying, is when, um, like, my, uh, some, uh, 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 our neighbour was fixing a bike for us, and I, I could see what he was doing wrong. And, and instead of saying, no, 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 you, wanna, you don't want to put that there, you want to put it there, I went, um, do you reckon if you try... So I tiptoed around a, a, a glaring mistake in a way so as not to, you know, upset him. And he wouldn't have been upset. He's, you know, he would have been fine. But in myself, I've been conditioned to tiptoe around a man who I can see is making a mistake. And I think it's just recognising those things in yourself. Yes. Um, and, are, and are you suggesting if it had been the other way around and you were doing the job, the man would have just said, oh, for goodness sake, you're doing it all wrong. They might and have done. Either mansplain or man take over you know, or, or just be difficult. I, 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 I try and avoid using the term mansplaining because it, it sort of, it, I don't think it's a helpful term. Um, sometimes men are genuinely being helpful these days and someone on Twitter and go, oh, cheers for mansplaining that. And suddenly by calling him a mansplainer, putting themselves in a sort of on the moral high ground, which isn't the case just because you have a name to call someone. There's a woman who works in the paint shop, like the, you know, house paint, wall paint um, near me. And I went in with um, the guy that was decorating my house and she was like, what are you talking about? You've just picked up chalk paint. He wanted to do your bathroom, darling, with chalk paint. And she tore strips of this young, poor young painter and decorator. But I thought, no, you're talking to him exactly how men have talked to me. Brilliant. It's just be up front. You don't know what you're talking about. I do. <laughs> Let me take over. She's my hero. It's a form of equality. Women get to behave as badly as men have always done. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Can you describe for me what the situation was like for women in the 1950s? How constrained were your choices as a woman? Well, they were totally constrained when it came to 
uh, anything in the outside world. In those days, jobs were listed by sex, and the only jobs available to women were secretary or clerk. We've got to move on to your last wonder now, um, which is uh, Iranians. Now we've mentioned you've mentioned Iran quite a lot through here, but let's assume you obviously know much more about Iran than than everybody does necessarily listening to this. So uh, the thing that I surprised when I apply my mind to it's a really big country, isn't it? Huge. It's not. Yeah. Yeah. What is it? Something is it something like eighty million people live there? That might be way out of date. Or hold um, on, there's me, my mum. <laughs> um, yeah, there's a. It, it's huge. The population huge. It's very, very dense, densely populated. But I said Iranians because when I started stand up, I was very much encouraged to talk about Iran by, you know, I, I, I sent you know an idea to the BBC about doing a sitcom about being a life model, for example, which is what I did to make the rent. Oh, when, right. when comedy wasn't paying the rent. Like Emma Hamilton, you were, you were a model. I was a life model too, exactly. A muse. Yes, yes. And, a, and, and a cleaner. She was a cleaner, I was a cleaner. Um, I am Emma, Emma Hamilton. Um, and I remember that the, the only note feedback from the BBC that came back regarding my script was, um, couldn't you write something about your Iranian background? <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, oh. So the message was, look, can you be brown, please? And so, um, to, to you know, I did, partly because, you know, I was navel-gazing, you know, early 20-something and it was very relevant to me. Um, but I, you know, things, I, I tended to get more jobs if I talked about that kind of stuff. And when I stopped talking about that kind of stuff, I stopped getting more work. Um, and then what I found was then people would have a go at me saying, oh, she talks about as being Iranian, without knowing that actually that was like a 10-minute routine and they only kept the three jokes about being Iranian because they were ticking boxes. And I found that very frustrating. And for a time, I shelved it, you know, and, and there's a part of me that was trying not to talk about it. And now I'm in a place where that makes me feel really sad um, because it's so much fun to, talk, to, to do it, but I was just all discombobulated in this industry about all my national identity and all of that sort of stuff. Um, and I'm not in the Iranian community like I used to be when I was a kid. Like, I don't know where the community is anymore because my life is so, you know, just driven by school and kids and my, my mm. locale. Well, what you've said Iranians, and of course, we know about I Iran, or think we do, from news stories going back uh, decades. There was, you know, that huge war between Iraq and Iran. The, the, the standoff, as this continues to be, between America and Iran over all sorts of things. There's, there's, there's terrorism, there's, there's fighting. And of course, you had an insight into some of that because your father had left there. Were you ever frightened about your father's connection with Iran? Yes. Very much. Like we, we had these people coming to kill him in 1984, which I've talked about lots of times. Um, there was a plot to assassinate him in London, which was very luckily, happily foiled. But just apart from all of that stuff, just Iranian people are, they, they always f floor me with their warmth and hospitality. I've never known anything quite like the hospitality Iranians show to strangers to a stranger there's an expression in in uh in Farsi where roughly translated is an unexpected guest is a gift from God 
<laughs> now, I am far too English. Yes. <laughs> like, my home is my castle. <laughs> Please don't just turn up on spec. So people would just pop round to our house and you dropped everything and fed them and they honoured you by coming unexpected to eat at your house. And if, and if a time went by and they didn't unexpectedly pop in to eat, it was rude. You started to feel hurt. You know, you haven't popped around for ages. Whereas in English culture, um, no matter how much I love some of the neighbours on my street, I'll drop them a text to say if they're free for a coffee. So, and also, um, contrary to the image of Iranians, um, individually and as a people and as a community, I've, I've just found them to be so um, accepting and open-minded, not always broad-minded, but very malleable in the way they think. And I think that has a lot to do with us being made up of such a mishmash of different cultures and religions and races, races, mm. <laughs> not racists. <laughs> well, uh, um, well, yeah. Uh, do you go? Do you go to Iran? Are you able to go there? No way. No, no way. I wouldn't. I would never risk it. Never ever risk going there. Not with my CV and my father's CV. People like poor Nazneen Zagari Ratcliffe, who who had nothing. She's never written a show or a poem or an article criticizing the regime and yet she's still um five years on um imprisoned there um so it is not a risk i would take they would let me in but the the chance of them not letting me out again is too huge so i would never do that no, sadly Right. Well, I think we've got to the end of your wonders and a, and a fascinating selection of wonders you've provided. And uh, I'm, I'm tempted to, um, well, I've been tempted by a lot of your suggestions to make as your, sort of the wonder of wonders, even starting with Charlie Chaplin, your identification with, in some ways, Emma Hamilton uh, was impressive. But I don't think I can look past your own picture uh, as a seven-year-old of a Tudor house which is <laughs> forms part of a treasured collection in your parents' house of uh, things connected with that image and a representation, I suppose, of a certain sort of Englishness that you've um, settled into um, without forgetting, obviously, the origins of the family in Iran. So I think, I'll, if I may, I'll make that your wonder of wonders. And, and thank you, Shappi, for uh, sharing your seven wonders with me today. Thank you. This is a Stakhanov production in association with Alaska TV and powered by the ACAST Creator Network. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.